this is Jennifer Fugo, and today we'll be mapping H. pylori on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Jennifer Fugo. Jennifer Fugo is a clinical nutritionist empowering adults who've been failed by conventional medicine to be chronic skin and unending gut challenges. She has experience working with eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, dandruff, and chronic hives, with clientele ranging from regular folks to celebrities and professional athletes. Jennifer also founded her own line of skincare and supplements available at quellshop.com, specifically for people struggling with chronic skin issues. She holds a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, is a faculty member of the Learn Skin platform, and is the host of the Healthy Skin Show podcast. This is an H. pylori masterclass, so perk up and listen in. Jennifer, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm just thrilled to have this time with you. Thank you for having me. So H. pylori, as you can imagine, is a hot topic, and I really appreciate how you speak into it. And I'm wondering, Jen, if you can kick us off by just talking into what H. pylori is. It is a corkscrew bacteria that is a pretty common infection worldwide. So stats show that about 50 to 60% of the world's population is infected with H. pylori. And of those cases, approximately 30% are considered silent. So the person may actually be infected, but not have common symptoms like heartburn and such. And usually the infection will begin in the mouth because the person either came in contact with someone else who already had it. So it is contagious via saliva, but also contaminated food, water, utensils. So you definitely picked it up somewhere. And as you swallow each time the bacteria, the presence begins to grow in the stomach and it starts to cause all sorts of potential problems. Let's talk a little bit about those potential problems because I know you really help us make some important connections that we might not tie back to an infection in the upper GI. So if we look at the central part of the matrix, what kind of signs and symptoms are we seeing in our client and patient population? You would probably see things like, well, the common ones are heartburn, GERD, nausea. You may even see things like belching, 
um, a heaviness in the stomach. So someone may complain that food just seems to sit there in their stomach like a stone. They may experience vomiting, unintended weight loss. And then further downstream, they may also have issues with diarrhea. I've had some clients too who are constipated. So I feel like you can kind of be all over the place with that. Darker stools can be a red flag, and then obviously getting like gas or bloating. I've also noticed clinically, and this isn't something that I have any data to back up, but when someone tells me they have an aversion to meat and animal products, and they actually felt better or noticed a big improvement in their, well, I work with a lot of chronic skin issues, so they felt better going vegan or plant-based, that is also a red flag because for some reason, people tend to have a harder time breaking down animal foods, and they tend to feel almost like sick or not well after eating them. And so those are some important factors. Some other kind of like sneakier tidbits here would be if someone is showing nutrient depletions like iron and B12, but other things that you might not think to look for would be vitamin C. So, and we know that's really important for like adrenals and as an antioxidant, copper, and even calcium. So if someone has osteoporosis, that could be a potential sneaky sign. If they obviously have iron anemia, we definitely want to evaluate them for this. And I will also argue that if someone has SIBO or small intestine bacterial overgrowth, they should be checked for H. pylori. I find, and I'm not sure why, this is one of the most overlooked pieces of SIBO cases that no one looks to check if essentially the front door of your house is closed because that's what stomach acid is. It is there to digest food, but it's also a chemical barrier. And for some reason, a lot of the SIBO cases that I've worked on, no one bothered to look. They just focus on SIBO, forgetting that there's an upstream potential issue that should be addressed. Yeah. And when we think about SIBO, the infection can come from either direction. So it's kind of interesting that we wouldn't be thinking about that upper route or that front door, as you said. And then further downstream, you mentioned the skin. Are we seeing chronic skin issues related to H. pylori? I do in my practice. So if someone has chronic hives or urticaria, dermatographia, anything that kind of looks like a histamine problem, I am definitely seeking out H. pylori to figure out if it's there. You can just have just outright itchy skin, different skin rashes, eczema. There is some connection between different skin issues and the incidence of H. pylori infections. So just a quick rattle off, like 72% of psoriasis cases, 65 to 70% of eczema cases, 75% of chronic urticaria, 65.3% of vitiligo cases, 72% of acne cases. So there's a pretty sizable amount of individuals who are struggling with these conditions, and they actually have potentially some issue with H. pylori under the surface. And I think one of the things that we need to consider is that H. pylori can destabilize mast cells, thus increasing histamine in the system. So Again, it is worth looking for, and I assume we'll talk a little bit about how to find it, or at least how I do that in my practice, but it is important to look. Let's talk about that because one of the questions I have, Jen, and maybe you can speak into this, is 
the prevalence that now exists for the quick fix or this one route and this idea that you said such a large population of people have H. pylori, is it one of those things that if we have it, we should find out and always address it? Is it over-addressed? Like there becomes this place in healthcare where everybody's looking for that one thing that they think is going to solve or resolve everything for them. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that trend in relation to H. pylori. I think that's a great question because it's something that tends to come up whenever I share about this on Instagram. People be like, but there's some thought that H. pylori could be okay and it could be almost like a commensal. The problem is I work with people who are really sick. (laughs) So it's hard to argue that like we shouldn't be looking for this. And I'll give you one example as to why. So H. pylori is associated with a pretty drastic increase in interleukin-17. Now, interleukin-17, for most practitioners, might not mean anything, but for somebody like me who works with psoriasis warriors, that is one of the major cytokines that biologic drugs are meant to block. And so if you're going to tell me we shouldn't bother to look for it in someone who's on say, Cosentix or TALTS or something like that that's blocking IL-17 and they've got severe psoriasis, I would have a hard time doing that because those individuals would like to eventually titrate off of their medication and they would love to not be covered in plaques. They would love to not be scratching themselves because a lot of times the plaques are itchy. So I think it depends on the person. Does it mean you go and seek it out in every individual? No, but if someone has a severe enough situation where it's really compromising their quality of their health, I would argue that it probably would be important. Inflammation disrupts the filaggrin gene. Just for those who are wondering, filaggrin is really important for the skin. And when that gene is disrupted by cytokines, it means that our skin barrier function really plummets and we don't have as good of a skin barrier. So you'll see like a lot of water loss and moisture loss through the skin. You'll see drier, flakier skin, and it can exacerbate different types of rash conditions. Perfect. I want to get into that testing and I just want to commend you for how well you spoke into that question and also just ask, is it a one and done so that you're providing that clarity where you're saying there are these complex cases, you test and address the H. pylori, which we'll talk about. And is that the only thread to pull or do you find in these complex cases, it is a thread to pull? Well, it's definitely a thread. It's usually not the thread because (laughs) many people were sick for a long time. I mean, I work with some eczema cases who they've had eczema since they were born and they're in their 60s. So decades, decades of not being well, unfortunately. And so, you know, I think then we have to consider what happens with the GI tract. Like there is no backup system in our GI tract. I think that was something that I didn't even fully grasp even when I was going through my master's program. So if you have low stomach acid, it means that every time you swallow, whether it's your saliva, the water you're drinking, or the foods you eat, you have the potential to introduce organisms into the small intestine and thus the large intestine that probably weren't intended to be there. And so 
to just say, oh, you have H. pylori, it's sort of like saying, oh, you just have SIBO. Usually there's something else going on. And while it's nice to say, we have a target, we have a direction, I now want to know what else happened in the process. Because the way I describe it to my clients is literally like, you went on vacation and left the front door of your house wide open. Would you expect to come home and have no one in your home? And they're like, no, probably not. It's possible somebody got in there. I'm like, exactly. And that's what we want to consider. Is there overgrowth in the GI tract, whether there's SIBO or even LIBO, large intestine bacterial overgrowth? Do we have different organisms that are now hanging out there that are opportunistic or even pathogenic? There's pros and cons to testing, and I think that it's fair to say that testing is not perfect on many fronts. We wish it was, but it's not. And I have had a number of cases where whether we've done some sort of stool test through a functional lab and or they've had like the urea breath test or testing through a local lab for like a stool antigen test or a blood test. Even they've undergone like an endoscopy and had a biopsy taken. For everyone who's like, oh, they don't have H. pylori. It's very clear. I've still had instances where I really suspected it and we tried to address it just like, you know what, let's just cover our bases and that actually really helped the person. So I think that we have to stop relying entirely on testing and we also have to be detectives. You have to ask better questions and you have to really dig through their case. The test is one facet. It's not the whole thing. And if someone complains, like if somebody tells me they had gastritis for years and years, I'd be like, that's kind of odd that you were just told you had gastritis. Like, that's a red flag. You know, we want to dig deeper. We want to help these people, but we also want to assess their stress levels. You know, I would also argue that we want to rule out, like with low stomach acid, you have to consider the age of the individual because we know that over 65, stomach acid does get depleted. So why is the stomach acid low? We want to rule out anti-parietal cell antibodies to make sure that there's no autoimmune activity going on that could be dropping stomach acid. And then also too, you know, a lot of people are afraid of minerals, especially we're still in that like salt fear paradigm. And I know that there's some instances where increasing the amount of salt, and when I say salt, I don't mean sodium, I mean like sea salt, so the full spectrum of minerals that we can get. A lot of people are still uncomfortable with the idea of increasing sodium and chloride, which we do need for stomach acid production. But again, the stress level piece, I mean, some people are so stressed out whether they will acknowledge it or not. And some have so much going on internally that I would argue it may not be an exterior stressor like in terms of situational stress, but it may be a more internal environment stressor that could also be playing a role that prevents the individual from getting into that rest and digest phase. So I think we have to look at the case from a variety of different factors and, you know, have a conversation with them about what works best for them because I think how you deal with H. pylori also should really be up to the client or patient. Yeah, so well shared, Jen. I really appreciate that more holistic perspective, meaning that we're seeing the whole person and not just coming from this perspective where we label everybody with the infection. So 
testing, you mentioned a few things. Anything you didn't mention that you want to talk about there before we talk about diet and lifestyle modifications? The only thing that I can say is that from research, it appears that the stool antigen test seems to have the best rate of detection. But, you know, like they all have pros and cons to them. You know, in doing like a biopsy, well, they are only punching one little spot. You could have H. pylori someplace else within the stomach and the gastric lining. It also is an organism that likes to burrow. And so I think that, again, I don't go entirely on testing unless it's very obviously high. The other time that I will definitely warrant trying to take action and consider doing that, even if the testing is negative, is usually in the case of someone who has what I like to call histamine overload. Most people would call it probably just histamine intolerance. But that's usually one other instance where I want to make sure that there is no H. pylori present. Yeah, great. Okay, so can we diet our way out of H. pylori? I know your answer, but I love how you speak (laughs) about this. (laughs) No, and this is one instance where people are like, food is medicine. And I'm like, yeah, but it can't fix everything. Although I would argue that herbs are medicine too. But no, you cannot out-diet H. pylori. There's no diet that's going to get rid of it. Yes, there's some modifications that somebody can make if their symptoms are severe, but this is just my feeling. My dad was a doctor. He was an MD and a surgeon. So I think I have this like interesting perspective on things. And I think it's really up to the person in front of us to decide what's best for them. I entirely agree that antibiotics are overprescribed. However, what if someone's symptoms are incredibly severe? Are you going to ask them to wait two or three months using herbs to see if they actually got relief? Like literally are really, really, really severe. And I think that's where we have to make this decision of allowing the client or the patient to take that information and ask them what their goals are and consider the level of suffering. Because some of my clients are really, really seriously suffering. And if someone does want to do the antibiotic route, there is the triple therapy, which is two antibiotics with a PPI. And some of the testing does look at the functional tests do look at if there are antibiotic-resistant genes, which is nice because you can have the client bring that back to their doctor. If you're a prescriber, you can obviously use that to help inform what would be a better combo. But research does show that clearance rates are better with the PPI present. I know a lot of us are horrified at the idea of lowering stomach acid further, but... Well, it's just long-term, right? Like the way we talk about it here is what you're saying is the yes and. We can't be anti-medicine or medication there's a time and a place for everything. We can't say you have cancer, don't do chemo, right? Like we have to take what the patient wants into consideration. And then that's part of the terrain we're working with. And like you're saying, if there's an infection, we need to address the infection. Mm -hmm. And I have worked with one client that she actually had a severe ulcer burst in her stomach. The practitioner had tried to use herbs, even though her symptoms were really severe, and then she ended up hospitalized. So I think it's a reminder that as much as you know, we can do a lot of things, quote unquote, naturally, I also think we have to gauge what's going on, what's the severity, and offer the client or the patient the best possible route. And sometimes if there's like a huge amount of overgrowth as well further downstream, 
you know, those antibiotics aren't just going to stay in the stomach. They may also help further downstream as well to reduce the level of bacteria. There's also herbals and supplements. I have found that one thing does not work. You usually have to use a combination of different things. Like metula tea might be the one thing that on its own can be helpful. That is a tea that your client or patient would use twice a day. You brew a cup and you drink the tea on an empty stomach. You can also do like a light brew for another person. So sometimes what we'll do is if somebody really has a lot of health issues, they have H. pylori and they have a spouse or a partner, we'll ask them to brew a second cup of that tea with the bag so it's less potent and have their partner also drink that. So that way it helps them save money. But at the same regard, we're trying to like give H. pylori the boot out of the house because we don't obviously want them to chance getting it again, which you can, by the way. You should be honest with people that it is possible to get it back. Also, mastic gum is great. NAC can be helpful. Mastic gum, I should mention, really does need to be at a therapeutic dose of at least somewhere around like, I usually do 500 milligrams twice a day. And then NAC can also be helpful to disrupt the biofilms in the stomach. And if someone is okay taking that, that's like five or 600 milligrams twice a day as well. And then I use different formulas. I mean, Designs for Health has uh, Gastromend HP and it has, I forget what the name of the particular substance in it, but that can be helpful. There's also Orthomolecular's Pyloracil. That can be a nice addition to some of these other botanicals. And then there is a new supplement from Microbiomes Labs called Pylogard, which is a capsule that you empty. So you don't swallow it. You actually empty the powder into water and drink it. I mean, I usually use it in conjunction with other things like DGL and whatnot. But I do think that that might be a great option, especially if you're dealing with kids who are struggling with this because kids can get it or somebody who can't swallow pills. That's where it gets tricky is when someone can't swallow pills and they actually need some other options. And I know I'm keeping you after class because class is definitely in session with you, Jen. So thank you. I know you also (laughs) speak about the benefits of zinc and colostrum and SAC-B. Anything else I'm missing that you would be considering as part of the alternative realm? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Zinc carnosine is also really helpful. And what we typically do is like 35 milligrams of zinc carnosine twice a day. So we're hit or miss with Saccharomyces boulardii simply because if somebody's constipated, I'm not comfortable giving that to them. So again, it's on a case-by-case basis. So that can definitely be helpful. And I actually really like immunoglobulins. If someone can tolerate colostrum, great. A lot of my folks have dairy issues. So usually I'm looking toward more of an immunoglobulin that's bovine derived, but it's just a reminder to everyone. If someone does have an alpha-gal allergy, they're no-goes. Good point there. I've been wanting to do an alpha-gal podcast. Haven't gotten that person yet. So if you have any recommendations, I'll take them. Food-wise, I know we can't diet the infection away, but are there helpful and harmful things that we should be thinking about? I would say in general, if people can avoid fatty fried foods, really super acidic foods, things like tomato sauce, wine, 
things that they find are a trigger, especially for their GI upset or their symptoms, that's usually the best thing to do. But a lot of my clients, by the time they get to me, they're on such a restricted diet that they've already eliminated a lot of this stuff. So a lot of times I'm encouraging reintroductions. So I should mention, I don't add betaine HCL into the GI tract. I know that there's a lot of controversy around that. Some people say we should reacidify the stomach and others will say we shouldn't. I just find that especially when somebody has a more histamine picture, adding betaine HCL makes people itchier and worse. That's my clinical experience. So I usually just stick with digestive enzymes while they're doing this just to try to do my best to break everything down and also encourage them to slow down and really, really chew their food because I'm like, we have no other set of teeth in our body except in the mouth. So if you don't chew your food, it's going to be really hard on the stomach when it's already compromised. So I hope that's helpful. It's super helpful. The last question before I let you go and rest from this masterclass is if there's anything that you feel like we're getting all wrong when it comes to H. pylori in our clinical practices that you wish you could shout from the rooftops. I would just say that it was something that we kind of underlined or underscored earlier was that we can't just rely on testing. You do have to dig. Part of being a practitioner is not just relying on what a test says. And sometimes you have that like spidey sense. You're like, I don't know why, but this picture just doesn't make sense. And I think something's going on. And I think it's worthwhile to consider that there's more to just testing. I'll also just share too, actually this came to my mind now, D. fragilis, which is a protozoa, is friends with H. pylori. <laughs> so if you do see D. fragilis show up on a stool test, you should suspect H. pylori, even if it says it's not there. And so there are some organisms that go together, and obviously parasitic issues are a completely different matter. But I think that's the biggest piece. And I think the last little tidbit would be let's not put our personal feelings about meds in front of what someone should or should not do. It's their health. It's not for us to tell them what to do. I I think there's that tendency. We want to shout it at the client, like shout it from the rooftops and tell everybody how to take care of it better. But the truth of the matter is, if we're serious about allowing people the opportunity to get back in the driver's seat and reconnect with that inner knowing, we have to allow the person the right to make a decision based on non-biased information. So that's why I always provide people the option. Sometimes they may ask me what I would do. And I will share that, but I'll also express, here's my bias or my situation, and that shouldn't influence you. Because I want them to know that whatever they choose, I will stand with them. And it's completely okay. There's no judgment on my part. And it makes people feel more comfortable and safe to start taking more ownership of their own health and be a really great partner in this process. Mm, Such an important note to end on. I couldn't agree more. Jen, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. 
The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.